The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is a writer who I had the pleasure of working with for several years, Anne Applebaum, whose amazing new book, Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1945 to 1956, has just been published by Doubleday. Anne, I'm so glad to be on the same continent as you, and in the same room even. <laughs> June, it's delightful to be physically next to you and not on the phone. So yes. many people tell me that. This, as I said, is an astonishing astonishing book, absolutely cram-packed with fascinating details about life in the eight nations of Eastern Europe, especially Germany, Poland and Hungary, and how the Soviet Union imposed its system on these countries. How did you come to write it in the first place? It really came out of the the writing of my previous book. I wrote a, a, six or seven years ago a book about the Gulag, history of the Soviet concentration camp system. I'm just going to interrupt you to know that that won a Pulitzer Prize. That's very, very kind of you to remind everybody of that. Uh, but I wrote a book about the Gulag, and in the course of writing that book, I got very interested in the uh, – fascinated, really, by the question of why people went along with it. What was the nature of this incredibly powerful ideology, and what, what institutional supports did it have? And so then I started to think about – moments in history where you could look at precisely this question. And actually 1945 is a a perfect moment because there you have really the fully formed Stalinist system, which has developed over 20 years in the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. imposing itself on Eastern Europe. Um, And so it's both interesting from the point of view, how did people accept it? How did they react? And also it's interesting, what did the Soviet Union itself at that point think were the most important things to do? How do you get people to go along? What are are the tools you need to put in place? And you can really see that in this particular period. And as you say, none of the things that are in this book would have been possible without World War II. The war rescued Stalinism, the Soviet victories, which came at a tremendous price to Russians and to other to everyone in that part of the world bolstered Stalin's legitimacy and his forces never really left the eastern european territory that they occupied early in the war but most of all it's that those countries were devastated by the war in terms of the lost and disrupted lives in a way that it's hard for us to imagine now yeah it's really not like western europe actually it's it's and you know even the bombing of you know the occasional city and you know and and, and even the the terrible bombings really of london and other places don't really compare to the kind of destruction you had in eastern europe if you had been standing in the middle of warsaw in the spring of 1945 you would actually have seen fields of rubble everything was flattened that was really matched and mirrored uh, all over the region. Cities were totally destroyed. Transportation links were disrupted. Many millions of people had died, up to 10% or in some cases 20% of the population. So it's a, it's a cataclysmic event, the Second World War in that part of the world. And as you also point out, there was this immense psychological destabilization because of what happened in the war. Even things like attitudes to stealing or lying 
that would have been completely unacceptable before the war just simply became... Yeah, people became used to a level of violence yeah. and used, used to, for example, the fact that the state could come at any minute and people could take your property away and there was really nothing you could do about it. I mean, so in fact, nationalization, the state taking over ownership of factories and businesses and so on, actually happened, began during the war and not afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's something that the Nazis did wherever they went. They evicted owners, took over factories and gave them to somebody else. And so people were, were in a way used to right. or accustomed to that kind of thing. Exactly. So I appreciated that at several points in the book, you remind readers communists actually believed in Marxist-Leninist ideology and that they really felt that the proletariat would rise up against the capitalist exploiters. And I guess that at least some of the Eastern Europeans who found themselves in Russia during the war must have also believed it. Um, they were known as the Moscow communists, and they were favored by Soviet leaders, you say. Yes, yeah, Stalin really in the end only trusted kind of fraternal communists who had spent the war in Moscow, whose life stories he understood, I should say it that way. Communists who'd been in the West, who'd been even in camps, were somehow always considered more dubious. You know, we, did, we don't really know what they were doing. Maybe they collaborated with somebody. Maybe they're not really on our side. So yes, he, was, he, he always favored this group of people, and this group of people did wind up having a good deal in common. These were people who survived not only the war, um, they survived Stalin's purges, um, they survived the many tactical changes that Stalin went through in the 1930s. So, it, you know, of course, Stalin is, later became, described himself as an anti-fascist. But at one point in 1939, he had a pact with Hitler and right. he did a deal with Hitler. And so that meant that the entire international communist movement had to turn on its heel and say, OK, we, we're not actually anti-fascist anymore, or at least for a while. You know, and some people were able to cope with that kind of change mm-hmm, and some mm-hmm. weren't. And so by 1945, the people who were still in the Stalinist camp were very ideological, very ambitious, and very wedded to the idea of Stalin as a leader. As you mentioned earlier, Soviet forces used a quite specific template to take over the nations of Eastern Europe. And the first step was always to establish a secret police force. How did they do that? And if I can ask a very basic question, what exactly is a secret policeman? I mean, do your neighbors know that you're a secret policeman? Probably the best expression isn't really secret police, it's political police. Mm. But I found that political police sounded awkward, and so yeah. I stuck with secret police. The secret police forces are the political police forces, so they were not the criminal police, and right. they were not the army. Um, they were a, a kind of shock troop group who were loyal to the Communist Party. And they were people who had extraordinary extra-legal powers. So they were able to break into people's houses. They didn't have to pay any attention to the rule of law. They could take away people in the middle of the night, and there was no nobody had any recourse. Mm-hmm. So they had a certain kind of power above the state or beyond the state. Yeah. And yes, some of them were secret and some of them weren't. I mean, so we knew who some who the leaders of them were. They also maintained networks of informers. Right. So those were the, that was, I suppose, the secret bit. People who, uh, you know, who, who kept notes on their neighbors or who went in for periodic conversations, you know, with their bosses in the capital. One has to be a little bit careful about the, this informer network because it's very ambiguous what people thought they were doing, why they thought they were collaborating, what they thought they were saying. Not, not everybody who was part of it was necessarily evil. Mm-hmm. So they maintained these informer networks. They had extra legal powers and they watched political and ideological developments in the society. Their primary responsibility was not crime. That was for the regular police. Right. So once the secret policemen were in place, the second sort of stage would be to use violence, it seemed, an extraordinary 
display of violence and, and sometimes apparently random violence. Well, random violence during the war um, was when, and right after the war was more common. What the Soviet Union did in that region was not mass violence. Mm. So there was not much mass murder. There were a few little instances of it. But mostly it was very carefully targeted violence. Mm. So they identified people who they thought might be leaders. And this would include people who'd fought Hitler, people who'd been in the anti-Nazi resistance. It included youth leaders. Right. Scout troop leaders. Scout troop leaders. It included any anybody who seemed like they might not necessarily having they might be a future problem even yeah. if they aren't a pre- problem in the present and in some cases they were arrested in some cases they were jailed in some cases they were simply repressed so they lost their jobs or they found it difficult to um, to achieve things in their professional lives mm-hmm. not all of them there it was it was not only violence mm-hmm. but and and the violence sort of rose and fell at, at different times but it was this process of targeting which i think is uniquely soviet and in some cases it was done before they got there so mm-hmm. the nkvd which was the name of the Soviet secret police at this time before it became the KGB would even would read newspapers. They would try and do research on who in the region would need to be under arrest or what kinds of people would need to be arrested when they arrived. So they had some idea in advance. I was struck again and again by how much of what happened was achieved via communication that sometimes seemed like little more than Chinese whispers. I mean, there were examples throughout the book, but for example, the the first one that I came across was in Poland. The original batch of secret policemen had been trained in Russia, but then they had to give up their notes, and also the most of the lessons, as it were, were given in Russian, and only a few of them spoke Russian. And then they had to leave their notes, and then they went to Poland, and then they had to kind of recreate it from memory. I'm surprised that there weren't more disasters from that. It, it, it well. was very ad hoc. I mean, it has to be said, the Polish secret police, although it was probably the one that was most carefully planned and organized before 1945, were notoriously incompetent, in fact. And the NKVD was always having to send in extra troops to help them, and they were never very good at what they were doing. So, yes, there, there was this constant attempt to echo or to do what we thought the propaganda said or what the ideology yeah. was supposed to be and nobody was ever really quite sure what it was or and then it never quite worked and so then they needed to go back and check it again but yes that's a very good example of that another consistent element is the use of what we now call ethnic cleansing there were massive population shifts in eastern europe during the war and afterward and this post-war mass movement was part of the Soviet plan you say yes this was actually the allied plan uh, remember that the borders of this part of the world were rewritten during and after the war and one country in particular Poland in particular found itself with absolutely new borders and some of the new Polish territories included what had been Germany in addition to that there were ethnic Germans all over this region for historical reasons they'd always been there there had always been German communities in, in different places but what happened after the war was that both the ethnic Germans who'd been there for centuries and the ones who had moved there during the war, which there were also many, and the ones who were living where they'd always lived but was no longer Germany, now it's Mm -hmm. Poland, were evicted and they were evicted very rapidly and very cruelly and very arbitrarily. So really anybody who was German, whether or not they'd been a Nazi or an anti-Nazi or whatever they'd done Mm -hmm. in in their previous lives was was evicted in in a very rapid and brutal way. Some of it took place in an atmosphere of what can only be described as revenge. I mean, this is particularly true in Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland. There were these Germans were chased out of their houses and chased screaming over the borders with carrying nothing with them. And there were a couple of ways in which this helped the communists. One was it was very popular and it was seen that the communists were the ones who were doing it. So it was this expulsion of the hated Germans Mm -hmm. who had been the occupiers up until a few weeks earlier was seen as 
good. And, you know, the Soviet Union has got rid of our Germans. The other, it's a little bit subtler, but when you expel people, many millions of people, you then have a lot of empty houses, property, land, mm-hmm. factories at your disposal. And this all fell into the hands of the state. So it was one of the ways in which the state acquired new property mm-hmm. and, you know, which it could then distribute and, and, and rule. So it was another way in which property and people fell into the hands of the communist parties. Let's just pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. Iron Curtain is available on Audible Unabridged, where it's read by Cassandra Campbell, who is apparently the Meryl Streep of audiobooks. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Iron Curtain, Gulag, or one of the other books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Doubleday has very kindly given us four copies of Iron Curtain to give away to listeners and Anne has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Iron Curtain Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, December 14th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Anne Applebaum, author of the new book Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1945-1956. Anne. The Soviets did believe in the power of media. They always set up and very carefully controlled radio stations. And in places where people didn't own many radios, they would broadcast over loudspeakers. They were mad about the media. They were mad about the media, but especially radio. Um, they they believed, they, as I said, they believed very deeply in the power of propaganda. You yeah. know, if we keep telling people enough times mm. and if we tell them in the right way, mm. then sooner or later they will believe us and they will agree with us and they will go along with us and they'll stop being so difficult. And so, yes, they broadcast over the radio. They broadcast over loudspeakers. There were factory radios. They were particularly interested in this kind of media because they thought it reached the, the masses. It yeah. reached the peasants. It reached the workers people who didn't necessarily read too many newspapers. And that was really what they cared about. They also were especially keen to target young people. And in fact, they it's almost like they pitted young people against older, more experienced workers and so on. Yes, they had the idea that younger people were more malleable and they were more convertible to their cause than older people. And you can see this in, in a lot of things. For example, the, they don't immediately attack the church, despite being officially being atheists, until later. Because when they first get there, they think, well, no, the church is going to die off on its own. What we need 
need to do is cultivate young people in, in the new uh, ethos of atheism and, and, um, and communism, and then they won't go to church anyway, so it's not going to mm. be necessary to get rid of the church. They are also obsessed from the very beginning with making sure that all youth groups, youth organizations, from the Boy Scouts to the Catholic youth groups, are somehow or another under state control, mm. and they want them to all be part of state organizations, and they go through all kinds of bend over backwards in order to get these different groups into one group and create a sort of umbrella organization, which eventually they do everywhere. And why were they so obsessed with that? This was the future. I mean, the youth are the future. The youth are the ones who are going to be able to, who are are, are going to be running our country in 10 years. They thought very long term. But also they they feared the power of young leadership, people Mm -hmm. who can Mm self-organize, people who were, had some ability to organize anything really outside of the state. And of course, you know, talented young people could do that. And Boy Scout leaders who had followers were able to to inculcate a spirit of anti-communism right. that they feared. So, yes, they were very afraid of young leaders and potential leaders. I'd heard the term stakhanobite before, but until I read your book, I didn't realize that shock workers were used around Eastern Europe to combat the lack of motivation that resulted from the fixed wages of the centralized system. Why were people so motivated to kind of overproduce? There was a kind of cult created around people who could overfulfill the norm. There was no hierarchy inside factories, and there were these were nonprofit institutions. How did you get people motivated if you weren't going to be able to pay them more, and if they weren't going to be able to eventually come out factory owners? There was no there was no way to progress. So they thought up this idea of creating socialist competitions. You know that people would compete with one another to see who could lay the most bricks or who could dig the most coal, right. and they would then celebrate the winners of these competitions and put their posters up their photographs up and invite them to parties and and give them watches. And and sometimes they did also have material benefits. They got salaries and Mm -hmm. so on. Eventually, this got abandoned. But in the the 40s and 50s, there was a a real push to make people work harder through these methods. And and it was, as you say, often it was used to set younger workers against older ones. Younger workers would be encouraged to become Mm -hmm. shock workers. And Mm -hmm. older workers would just find this irritating. We talked about this earlier when when you said that in a way, the entire book is about how the system worked, how, as you put it, the extraordinary achievement of Soviet communism as conceived in the 1920s, perfected in the 1930s, and then spread across Eastern Europe after 1945 was the system's ability to get so many apolitical people in so many countries to play along without protest. How did Soviet totalitarianism get so many people to conform? I think you have to look at a couple of aspects of it. Probably the most important is one that we've now touched on three or four times, which is the system's ability to control everything. Mm. So they control not just politics and not even just economics, but they also control schools, hospitals, leisure time, sports clubs. Really everything is under the control of the state. Mm -hmm. And that gives people very, very few choices. And people would actually behave rationally in this system. Mm -hmm. So if you're somebody and you have a job and maybe your wife is sick and maybe your son wants to go to university and somebody says to you, I'm forming an independent chess club, you know, we'll play outside of the regular chess league. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, I'm not going to be arrested for that, but I might lose my job. Mm -hmm. So why would I bother to to play? And my wife might lose her medicine. Why should I bother to play in the chess club? One of the cases that interests me is the story of printers. Before they even nationalized printing presses in eastern Germany in 1940s, they, they simply passed a law saying that every printer is only allowed to print things that have been approved by the, the central printing committee. Mm-hmm. And 
again, this presented people with a kind of dilemma. You know, well, I can just print what I'm supposed to print. I can keep my job. My wife can get her medicine and my son can go to university. Or I can print something illegal and I can lose my job and my life loses her medicine. I probably lose my apartment and my son doesn't get into university and all kinds of calamity takes place around mm-hmm. me. So why shouldn't I print these brochures with Comrade Stalin's picture on the cover? I don't really like Comrade Stalin, but the price you had to pay for defying it was so mm-hmm. high. And I, mm-hmm. I began actually in the course of writing the book, I began to have some sympathy for mm-hmm. people who had to make you know we don't have to make terrible choices like right. that and mm-hmm. I, I began sympathizing with the, with the the group of people whom I wound up calling reluctant collaborators right. or there are many many people who went along with things who didn't necessarily like it much but they felt they had no choice mm-hmm. and this of course becomes very important 40 years later in the 1980s this is one of the reasons why that system fell apart so quickly so right. many people appeared to be going along with it right. but the instant they didn't have to they stopped because mm-hmm. they felt humiliated and ashamed that they'd been forced to conform all of those years right i was also fascinated by uh, again you, you expressed the the sort of the tension between some people were able to leave but being an immigrant is not an easy thing leaving your homeland is not an easy thing especially if like poles or hungarians homeland was the only place where they could speak their own language. Some people did leave, but it was a very difficult decision and also not an easy thing to do. It was very, very difficult to leave. I mean, it was, if, as you say, particularly for people who left their languages, but for people who had relations, people they needed to help. Not everybody was able to go and set up in a new country from start from scratch. It just, it just wasn't possible for people. Yeah. And so people felt, right, this is my country. I have to live here. This is the system that is in charge, I have to find some accommodation with it. And people tried, and people tried to find ways to live within the system, but defy it in small ways or to find zones of privacy. Uh, And I I do try and describe some of that too. As I was reading the book, in several places, I would be reading about something that happened in Eastern Europe in 1948, and it would remind me of a situation in the contemporary world. And I'd note in in the margin, Zimbabwe, Russia, Iran, China. You describe very specific situations and stories from history, but the template that the Soviets created is still being used today, isn't it? Well, that's not accidental, actually. This, the Soviet system was copied in many right. places. I mean, literally, Soviet advisors were sent to Iraq, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where many of the systems Saddam Hussein put into place were ones he, he or his advisors had learned in, in, in the Soviet Union. That's very true in, in the Middle East. It's true in China, although China then changed, yeah. developed its own system. But many of the dictators of our era, of the late 20th century and even, even to this day, had some training or some understanding of methods of social social control, which they learned from the Soviet Union. So yes, you can see these kinds of patterns, this attempt to control through, particularly this through the control of civil society, through the control of media, you can see that today. You're a very accomplished journalist and also a distinguished historian, as books like this one and Gulag attest. How is writing history different from journalism? It's very different. I reckon that my role is to reflect as, as much as I can the truth of something that happened in the past and to and to give people from the past their voices. My voice doesn't dominate the writing. It's right. it's the people who were alive. And that's why I quote people so much yep. Yep. because it's their story, not my story. Um, when I'm writing journalism, particularly when I'm writing opinion columns 
for example, for Slate, then I feel like it's okay to say what I think or to, to, to insert my views. Indeed, but, it's your job sometimes. And for, indeed, that's, I think, what I'm supposed to be doing. So, exactly. <laughs> but history, it feels to me like a different process. And the process of writing a history book is completely different. I mean, it's, it's to do with accumulating a lot of materials over a long period of time. I mean, the best journalism, of course, is also a lot of yeah. work. And it also involves, you know, research and calling people and talking to people and thinking and so on. And marinating yourself. And marinating yourself in the subject. It's absolutely in that way. In that way, it's, of course, very similar. I feel lighter about the present. I feel I don't owe things to the present that I owe to the past. In the present, I can say I think X and I know that 17 minutes later, somebody will tweet, well, I completely disagree. I think Y. And you don't have that with history. You know, you you have a – I have more responsibility to to make sure that the story is told from different perspectives and from the people who lived at the time. And you certainly do that in Iron Curtain. I'm just curious. I know from having been your editor that you're a very fast writer of journalism at times. Are you a fast writer of history too? Not so fast. <laughs> no, no, no. This, this book in particular was very hard to write because it involved integrating so much material from so many yes. different places. And yes. I probably did too much research. I probably spent too much time doing the research and then I had to narrow it down when I, when I started writing. Well, I didn't I, write it as fast as I would have liked to have written it. <laughs> well, I, as a reader, and I'm sure everyone else who, who reads it will be very grateful that you did do all that research. That was Anne Applebaum, whose new book, Iron Curtain, is available in bookstores now. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. If you have any comments, about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade, the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.